0: Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood
1: I thank you so much for just the gift of your word, uh, for the gift of technology, that even though we don't have slides that are working or uh, microphones that are are working, God, that your, your word, as it goes out, is not empty. Your word does not return void. We're thankful, Lord, that that even just in in just the messiness of, of life, messiness with technology not working, uh, with bad hair days, with crying babies, just with however we we come uh, to here to you, Lord, uh, that this is this is your day. We're here to honor you on the Lord's day. So, God, as we open your Word, I pray that you would just feed our souls, that you would um, feed our minds, nourish our our hearts, help us to see. Uh, Christ more clearly, better, that we might come to know him more, love him more, and make him known to the world around us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So um, <clears throat> there's this, this ancient creed. This ancient creed that Christians have been reciting since, since the earliest days of Christianity, and, and this creed called the Apostles' Creed, was used as a measure of what you need to believe as a Christian. It's made up of uh, three short sections, maybe if you grew up uh, in like a high church, uh, tradition, uh, like a Reformed tradition, or, or even a Catholic tradition. You, you may have uh, had to memorize this creed at, at some point. And in these three short sections, the second section is all about the most central things that you need to believe about Jesus, the creed as a whole, the Apostles' Creed, kind of summarized what the apostles taught about the gospel, and so it was about all the essential uh, central teachings about God, about his gospel, but the second section was all about Jesus, the most central things that we need to know about him. It talked about how, how he is God's only son, our Lord. How he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, suffered, crucified, died, buried, descended to hell, rise from the grave after three days. How he ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. And then the creed states, from there, from there, from the right hand of the Father, he will come. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And it's that last phrase of the creed of Jesus coming back to judge the living and the dead that I think we as modern Christians, we as Western Christians just are are less acquainted with that part of Christian teaching that the early church considered so key to the gospel. I mean, this was a repeated expression of the Christian faith by our spiritual ancestors. They openly and regularly confessed the victorious turn of, return of Jesus Christ, his, his second coming. And they did this, they did this because they, they knew that his second coming, the last judgment, they knew that it was a key part of the good news, the gospel. And look, as, as Christians, we love the gospel, Right? As a a church, we love the gospel. Like we say that King's Cross Church is a gospel-centered church. And so it's important, it's important that we understand this doctrine of Jesus' return to understand the fullness of the gospel. It's important that we understand that to understand the whole gospel, you need to include in that gospel his triumphant return. We should not, we cannot confine the gospel to just the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, when Jesus first came, what, what did he do? He brought salvation for all who would believe in him. And if you're a Christian today, you get to enjoy that good news. You get to live in the joy and freedom of that good news in the present. Well, let me ask you, like, is our experience in the here and now, that joy in the gospel here and now all that God had in mind? No. As we've seen all throughout our series in Revelation that it is especially the second coming of Jesus where our attention is drawn to the gospel's intended destination. Second coming is where the gospel leads us to. From here this, this this passage that we're looking at this afternoon, from here, chapter 19, verse 11 and on, John describes that second coming as just as this one climactic event, and then for the rest of the book, he just starts to list out all of its consequences. This is the home stretch of Revelation, and what we're looking at it's this is the moment. The second coming is the moment that the whole book, that all of Revelation has been winding up towards. It's the final hope that every human soul longs for deep down. You've heard us talk about how we live in what theologians call uh, the in between the now and the not yet, right? You've heard us say that before? What what we mean by that is, is that, like at the resurrection, Jesus declared the judicial condemnation of the enemy, right? And, and that reality is something that we experience. Now, death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Evil has been defeated. That victory is sure. He rose from the grave, and he's at the right hand of the Father. But, but we still lose loved ones. We still go through hard things, through pain, through suffering, We still are met with things in this world that just make us go like, ah. And so we long for the day that even though that victory has already been realized, we await what's called a full consummation of that when Jesus returns. And here in Revelation 19, he returns to carry out that verdict. So the judicial condemnation has already been said, but here in Revelation 19, he returns now to carry out that verdict, to carry out that sentence, to bring the not yet that we long for in the today to the present. And look, if we, if we, wanna, if we want hope, and I, I mean like real hope, like deep-seated hope. If we want hope in those moments where we suffer, where we're persecuted, where we're experiencing loss and pain and death, when you cry out that prayer, how long, O Lord? The second coming of Jesus is the ultimate answer to that prayer that we need. And so now we find ourselves in the middle of chapter 19 and verse 11. This is now the fifth and final vision of Revelation. Remember how how Revelation is a series of visions, right? Like in in chapter 1, John says that he he heard this loud voice. He turns around, and he sees this vision of Jesus. And then the next, he sees a door in heaven opened. And then he he sees the plan of God uh, unfolding throughout history. And so every few chapters, there's a new door opening. There's a new window opening. And this is the last vision. Verse 11, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, And what John, the author of Revelation, describes from here on is just just breathtaking. It's the final vindication of Jesus and his disciples. In his second coming, the fulfillment of all the things that Jesus promised his first disciples, all the things that Jesus promised to us when he said, this is what you will receive if you follow me to the very end, like all of that comes to the here and now at his second coming. So our main points, I'll just give it to you right now. Our main points for today is that when King Jesus returns, all will see that he is bigger than we think. He is better than we assume. He's more beautiful than we can imagine and his final battle is as good as won. Let's look at each of those. Number one, when the king returns he we will see that he is bigger than you think. He's bigger than you think. Verse 11 again says, then I saw heaven opened and 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 behold a white horse. Jesus is pictured on this on this white horse. Now remember in the book of Revelation all this symbols and the, the colors and, and the animals that we see is is what we call apocalyptic imagery. That means that this isn't going to be what literally happens, but that that these these pictures and these colors, these symbols, have a greater meaning. They help us peer behind the curtain to the truer reality that is at play. And so when the when the king of the cross returns when King Jesus returns in this vision, he is riding a white horse, and that color is significant. Because when 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 Julius Caesar returned from his his first great military victory, he came home to the crowds in Rome riding a chariot that was being pulled by white horses. And it was iconic historians wrote it down, like how beautiful the scenery was. And so the white horse became a a customary symbol of victory, like word got out and all all the other leaders of empires were like, oh, that sounds cool, right? Like, I wanna do that too. And so every time that there's a a new military victory, they'd ride in on a white horse. And so when heaven opened up, up for John, what does he see? He sees King Jesus riding in, but not like he did on Palm Sunday. On the back of a full of a donkey is a symbol of peace. No, on the day of this final battle, he appears on the back of a white horse, signifying that, that this warrior king will win the victory. In verse 12, it says, his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now, this might sound familiar to you because do you remember how the book of Revelation opened? You got John there, he hears that voice like a trumpet thundering behind him, and he turns around and he sees this, this shocking, terrifying vision of Jesus, which, which jarred him because, because Jesus is the one that he followed. Jesus is the one that he learned the scriptures from. Jesus was his teacher and his, his friend. But then we saw in chapter one that, that Jesus is revealed to be this, this fearsome, awesome king a beast in his own right. And in chapter one, it said that his eyes were like a flame of fire. And so that same image is repeated here in chapter 19. This symbol tells us that that Jesus, with his eyes like a flame of fire, he he sees far more than what any man can see. His discerning scrutiny is like laser-like. No one can hide from his all-knowing mind and his piercing gaze. Nothing is, is, is hidden from him. His judgment that he's about to bring is informed by what is true. He's able to bore through any outward pretense, any religious performance, He's able to see the deepest and darkest recesses of our hearts. His judgment is incapable of being deceived or tricked. He sees all and he knows all. He's God. He's God. And then verse 12 continues and it says, and on his head are, are many diadems, which, which is a fancy word for crowns. That's kind of a, a funny picture, right? Like, are we to picture Jesus balancing crowns on his head like, like, like this circus act? Like, no, remember, this is apocalyptic imagery. And so what do we do with it? What does John mean by this vision? It's a picture of Jesus' sovereign rule. See, before, he had a crown of thorns embedded into his scalp as an act of, of mockery. But now he's got full universal sovereignty, unparalleled royalty. Verse 13, it says that he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. We see why it's dipped in blood at the end of verse 15 when it says, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now look, some commentators will say that, that, that the blood on his robe is, is his own blood from, from the cross. But I think when, within the context of verse 15, we see that that's not the case. I think the picture that we're supposed to walk away with is that this is is the blood of his enemies. This isn't the first time that we've actually come across this image with the wine press. In chapter 14, the judgment of God is pictured as a grape harvest. In chapter 14, it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Oh, sorry, that's actually chapter 15 of verse, or verse 15 of chapter 19. So it says that his, from his mouth comes a sharp sword from which he'll strike down the nations. Now, now this sword is not a literal sword, right? Remember, apocalyptic imagery. And so it's meant to show us that the instrument he will use to destroy his enemies will be his spoken word. Throughout the Old Testament, God's word His revelation of himself is described as this two-edged sword. In the beginning of the Bible, in the very first few pages of Genesis, it says that God spoke, let there be light. And what happened? There was light. There was light. In one spoken word, he created the cosmos. And in one spoken word, on the last day, he can undo them. These verses reveal the identity of Jesus as the one who brings the judgment of God against evil, sin, death, and the devil. These verses show us that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Like in, in, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, there's this prophecy uh, about, about God and, and then people are asking, they're seeing this vision of, of God and they're saying, why are your clothes red? And elsewhere it says that God's judgment will come with righteousness. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath destroy the wicked. You see, God promises that he would be the one who comes as the bloodstained warrior to save his people out of love, to save his bride, save his people, and destroy his enemies at the last battle with the very word of his mouth. This is the pattern that we see all throughout the scriptures. Like in the Old Testament, God promises he would be our shepherd. We would see promises that he would be our king, that he would be our husband, that he would be our deliverer, that he would be our warrior. And in each and every case, the New Testament records the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises in a single man, Jesus See, when Jesus comes, God comes. At his first coming, when Jesus came, God came. At his second coming, when Jesus comes, God comes. Jesus is God. He's bigger than you think. He is so overwhelmingly powerful. His victory is secured. The beast from below is out of his league. He'll be destroyed in the presence of this king. Number two, the king is not only bigger than you think, but he's better than you assume. He's better than you assume. And this is revealed through the various names that he's given throughout this vision. Back in in, in verse 11, he's described as the one uh, who's sitting on the horse. It says the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. Capital F, faithful, and capital T, true. Now, when it says that he's called true, it's not making a statement about how real he is. It's using the old Hebrew sense of the word true, which is to say that he's reliable, he's trustworthy, he's good on his word, and faithful to his covenant promises. To say that Jesus is called capital F faithful and capital T true is to say, look, the case has been made, the verdict has been given, he is true to the very end. His nature is so loyal to God that he is going to execute judgment in the last battle according to God's perfect justice, This is why Jesus says <clears throat> in John chapter 5 the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son and in Revelation 19 verse 13 we see another name it says the name, he, that on, on, his, on him is the name by which he is called which is the word of God he's called the word of God now, now that should ring a bell for you if, if you're familiar with the New Testament. Where, where, where else is Christ called the word of God? In John. John chapter one. Only one writer refers to him this way. This is how John opens his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So he's talking about a person. And then it says, he, the word, was in the beginning with God all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is the very word of God. He is the power, the word by which all things were made. John 1 verse 14, it says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, God Himself has come. And the power of the Word is not only how God made all things, it's also how He reveals Himself to us. That tells us that the point of Christ's first coming was to, in a sense, make God known in every way to humans. And here in Revelation 19, at the second coming, Jesus is again called the word of God. Because the defeat of his enemies, which we'll read about in a bit, his judgment will make God known to all who refuse to believe what he said about himself. This is the moment that will force his enemies to acknowledge that he is who he says he is. And then in verse 16, it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's one name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, on his robe and on his thigh. Now, the way that the original Greek works, it's not that his name is written in two places, but the grammar there tells us that it's written on his robe over his thigh. So if you want to picture it, remember, he's sitting on this white horse, right? And so if he's on a white horse and he's got this robe and this, this name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords is, is on his robe over his thigh, that means it's, it's draped over the side of the horse. And so in other words, it's just out there on display for all to see. King of kings, Lord of lords, that's an amazing name. I was reading, uh, there's, you know, the Queen Elizabeth had her, what is it, Platinum Jubilee uh, recently. Um, her official title is Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, of the kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and of her other realms and territories, Queen head of the commonwealth, defender of the faith. That's a mouthful, right? You hear like all these names, you're like, ah, she's so important, right? Like after hearing like all of these names, but look, this name, king of kings and lord of lords, is shorter, there's far more authority packed in. This is John's way of saying he's the ruler of all rulers. This name is the name that was only given for God all throughout the Old Testament. And in chapter 17, this was the name given to the Lamb of God. And so that's a picture of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so what that tells us is that this, this returning king is Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who in giving his life for us, defeated our enemy, the dragon. So there's no doubt who will win and who will be defeated in this last battle. And then the next name that we read about is a a mysterious one. In verse 12, it says, On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. That's strange, right? Like John sees this vision of Jesus, and on all these crowns, there's this one crown that's got this name for Jesus that nobody, even John couldn't make it out. He said nobody knows it, but himself but Jesus I think the point of putting that in here is to say hey look there are secrets still that even only he knows Jesus is is so much more incomprehensible his love, his grace, his holiness is so other than us that he can never be fully and exhaustively known. And this, this unrevealed name symbolizes the this, this sheer incomprehensibility of Jesus. Robert Mounts in his commentary says it this way. He says, the most common interpretation is that it is a secret name whose meaning is veiled from all created beings. And it expresses the mystery of his person. There will always remain a mystery about Christ that finite minds will never fully grasp. You know the point of this secret name? The point of this secret name is, is meant to get us to just humbly marvel, to humbly marvel before Christ. There's something so mysterious that even angels and demons can't figure it out about how Jesus establishes his sovereign rule. We'll we'll, we'll never comprehensively exhaust our knowledge about Christ. Number three, point number three, this returning king, when he returns, you'll see that he's more beautiful than you could ever imagine. Verse 14 says that the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses. So Jesus appears in all his majesty with his with his with his word with his fiery eyes on the back of like this this huge horse this white horse and trailing behind him are the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure. Now this army this army is not an army of angels, but a human one. It's an army of saints. How do we know that? Because you've got to remember the context here. Remember when Mark was preaching last, last week uh, in the beginning of Revelation 19, and, and someone was given fine linen, bright and pure? you remember who that was? It was us. It was the saints. That's the context here. In verse 7 and 8, it's, it, there's this, this vision of of, of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We have in the beginning of, of Revelation 19 a picture of the wedding. Like the capital W wedding, the wedding that all other weddings point forward to. Look, the best weddings, the best of all weddings are just a picture of the kingdom of God. That's what Revelation 19 tells us. Everyone has a great time. Everyone celebrates. We all look forward to it, right? That's what makes a good wedding. You know why? It's because we we were made for a wedding. It's wired into us as people made in God's image. We, we were made for a feast. We were made for love and union and communion with God. Every party, every party that we've ever partied is just a mere shadow that points forward to the great party of Revelation 19. People in heaven aren't like floating around on clouds, plucking away at harps. That's a boring picture, right? That sounds more like hell. People in heaven though, they're not bored. They're singing, they're partying, they're eating the best food and drinking the best wine at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's what Revelation tells us. You know the sound of a crowd cheering at a big game or or the sound of, of a crowd like singing in unison with the band? That's how the people of God will be in the presence of God when they're singing his praises on that day. And man, like I, I, I pray that our hearts of worship would reflect a readiness for that day. Man, every, every person who throws a party, who wants to throw a good party, deep down, what we're yearning for is what we're looking for is Jesus. Everyone who cooks a meal, invites people over, opens up their home is, is looking for Jesus. And when the king returns on that day, the party comes to us in the kingdom of God. That's who the armies of heaven are. The saints dressed up in their fine clothing, the fine linen, riding their own white horses because they get to share in the victory of their warrior king. He's more beautiful than you could ever imagine. And chapter 17 describes this part. Of the or chapter 17 uh, actually described this part of the final battle. Uh, in verse 14, it said, they will make, the, talking about the beast and the dragon, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. What that tells us is that, look, the whole reason that we're there on those white horses following him into the last battle. It's not that he needs us. We just get to be with him. We just get to be there and with him. See, being a faithful witness means we follow the lamb wherever he goes, even until the very end. And even until the very last day. And on the last day, we've got no role to play in that battle. He does it all. He does it all. We do nothing. So why are we there? Just to watch and to worship, to marvel, to look at how amazing our warrior king is. And when that last battle is waged, we'll see his unparalleled sovereignty, his his absolute total deity, and his sure victory, which leads us to our last and final point, that the king's last battle is as good as one. Point number four, our last point, the king's last battle is as good as one. Check out verse 17 and 18. It says, John says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. And he says, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of all captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. It's a gruesome picture. That dinner invitation to the birds anticipates the outcome of this battle. It doesn't look good for God's enemies. And then in verse 19, it says, I saw the beast... And the kings of the earth with all their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who, in its presence, had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. They had a feast. Look, I, I know this is an unsettling picture. I know this is like a gruesome picture. Like one of, one of the things I love about preaching through books of the Bible is that it does, we, we, don't, we don't have the liberty of, of skipping hard passages like this. And one of the things that sometimes I don't like about going through books of the Bible is we don't have the liberty of skipping our passages like this. But look, the beast and their followers, they gather to wage war against the rider and his armies. In verse 19, what I want you to see is that just one verse later, Christ wields his sword and the battle is over in verse 20. This isn't a drawn out battle. It's not a 12-round fight. It's not even a one-round fight. Right? Like as soon as the bell is rung, the beast is clocked. Nights out. And this is not like Gandalf arriving at Helm's Deep to like Carry on the battle, or Aslan, Aslan like galloping into the fords of Baruna, right? Like, notice there's no lengthy description of the battle here. But those who rise up against the rider, they 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 just find no battle at all. Christ wields his sword through the word of his mouth, and it's over. The beast who once seemed so intimidating and so powerful to us in earlier chapters is defeated instantly. Will be as thorough as grapes in a wine press, verse 15 says. And those who rise up against the Lord are left in the field of battle for the birds to feast upon. They're thrown into the lake of fire where they will experience eternal judgment for this sin and refusal to repent. And the the only survivor in this battle is the divine warrior and his army. The first time the son of God came back in Bethlehem, he came hidden, small, weak, alone. He rode into Jerusalem on that lowly donkey. But here, here in Revelation 19, his return will be as a mighty warrior on a white horse, To deal a decisive blow against his enemies. Man, this is a full picture of Jesus. If your picture of Jesus is just baby in a manger, Jesus, talking to the crowds, Jesus, that's that that's too small of a Jesus. Now you need that picture to show his lowliness and his love and his grace. But the full biblical picture is one where the saints gather to, to marvel, where angels sing his praises, where demons tremble before him. And his final act of justice would be a great comfort to original readers. This chapter would be great comfort to original readers because those first century Christians, remember they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. Many of them were dying for giving allegiance to Christ. And so this, this vision assures them that, that evil does not triumph. It doesn't have the last word. And the warrior king has the last word. Look, our ignorance of God's holiness might leave some of us thinking that, that this passage is just way too gnarly and way too severe. But without this righteous judgment, listen, without this righteous judgment, there would be no end to sin. There would be no end to the effects of sin. Without this righteous judgment, there would be no end to suffering, no end to the headlines that we're so freaking tired of reading No end to school shootings, no end to political and corporate corruption, no end to abuses of power in marriages, in companies, in churches. The list goes on. The things we hate most about living in between the now and the not yet, there would be no end to those things without that final judgment. But one day, this chapter tells us that one day, it's all going to end, all of it. No more death, no more poverty, no more shootings, no more injustice. He's going to wipe away every tear. And so if you feel like you've suffered every day of your life, then this day is recorded to give you hope. He'll come to conquer so that there is no more sin and no more suffering and that there is mercy and redemption and the renewal of all things. What difference does this make in our lives? I'll close with this. What difference does this make in our lives? Just a few things. Just to be sobered by the reality of God's righteous judgment. Be sobered by this reality. Everyone here will feast at the marriage supper of the lamb or will be feasted upon at the day of judgment. It's interesting to note that those those warriors, the King Jesus and the beast from below, they're both surrounded by the people whose destiny is dependent on the fate of their champion. Who's your champion? Number two, we should have hope through our persecution and suffering. Remember that evil doesn't have the last word that one day sin and suffering will be no more. We have a heavenly perspective of the last battle so that we can endure in hope and not be swayed by the temptations of Babylon. And lastly, we should have a passion to reach the lost, to reach our family members, our friends, our neighbors who don't yet know Jesus with the goodness and hope that only he brings you might be thinking like, ah, yeah, I know, but they're not really interested in, in this Jesus thing. But, man, I was so far from Jesus once. I'm glad I had people in, in my life who, who didn't give up on praying for me and living out the gospel to me and sharing it to me. Saying, please don't reject this offer. Don't, don't underestimate what the Lord could do through you. One of my heroes, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, says, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about our knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned and unprayed for and unloved. Let us look forward with joyful hope to the sure victory of that last day and consider what we need to do today to get ready.
0: Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.